In Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart, he's got a remarkable statement. This is on page 105. The prospering of God's cause on earth depends upon his people thinking well. Very often in our day, we actually kind of think the opposite. Uh, people of faith are thought of as people who don't rely so much on reason. But uh, it's very important to understand that is not the case. Dallas goes on in this section. Many Christians today will be surprised to learn that Isaac Watts, the composer of such well-known hymns as Joy to the World, Alas and Did My Savior Bleed, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, along with many, many others, also taught logic and wrote a widely used textbook, Logic, the Right Use of Reason in the Inquiry After Truth. Those hymns owe much of their power to the depth of thought they convey. So I want to give you a thought to carry into your day and then talk about the image associated with it. And the thought is from the book of Hebrews in the Bible, chapter 12. Let us run with perseverance the race set before us, keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Now, obviously, that's not our literal eyes. That's focusing our mind where we place our minds is a matter of tremendous importance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. We'll come back to all of that as we think about this one image. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Now, in our minds, our ideas, we talked about this most recently. If you didn't look at the last devotion, you can take another look at it. Now we go on to something else that is a very important part of our minds, and those are images. Dallas writes, page 99, closely associated with governing ideas, our assumptions about reality, are images that occupy our minds. Images are always concrete or specific as opposed to the abstractness of ideas. Ideas are about things like liberty or God or freedom or equality. Images are concrete or specific and are heavily laden with feeling. They frequently present themselves with the force of perception and have a powerful emotional and sensuous linkage to governing idea systems. They mediate the power of those idea systems into real life situations, into real situations of ordinary life. Every idea system is present among us as a life force. These are spiritual realities through a small number of powerful images. Now, to get more concrete about this, in recent American and European history, hair, long, short, skinhead, green, orange, purple, braziers, or the absence or burning thereof, flags and their desecration, rock music, 
Funky or baggy clothes have provided powerful images and symbols of conflicting idea systems and the attached ways of life. And those images that are associated with traditional authority, sometimes called the establishment, have been trending downward. There's great emotion attached to these images. People often fight about them without having great clarity about why is it this image has so much power in my life or in our society. Dallas goes on, in many Christian churches today, the services have divided into traditional and contemporary, primarily over imagery and the explosive feelings attached thereto. The guitar and the pipe organ are no longer just musical instruments, they are powerful symbols. This is not to say that such divisions are either unimportant or sinful, but in order to act responsibly in relation to them, one does have to understand what drives such divisions. And what a sad, tragic thing it is in churches when there arise what have come to be known as worship wars over which instruments will be used, which very often covers up another question that has to do with who is in control, who actually gets to own <laughs> Jesus' church. Dallas wrote these words about 20 years ago. I think that uh, those wars are not as pervasive as they were 20 years ago as time keeps passing. I was thinking about another image in our day that was not one in Dallas's day, and those are masks. Over the last year or two, I can't tell you how many pastors I've talked to where the issue of masks, the wearing of masks, has become an unbelievably divisive, incendiary image from all sides. Issue. Now, why is that? I mean, a mask is just a tool. It's a way to try to keep people healthy. And, of course, trying to figure out uh, the pros and cons, how helpful will it be, um, what are the costs of not being able to see somebody's face, which is a great joy to us? When should we make decisions about their use or not is a very complicated one. So you'd think we'd all be quite understanding about that, but we're not. It's incendiary, the issue of masks. It's emotionally volatile. People are leaving churches or small groups over it. Why? Because it has become an image. It is a symbol for political identity, which in our day very often is idolatrous. But we do not want to admit that we have an idolatrous attachment to a political identity. Images are powerful because they allow us to practice idolatry without admitting it even to ourselves. This is why when you think about it, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Bible, there's the Ten Commandments, and the second commandment is, Thou shalt not make for thyselves a graven image of God. Israel alone was forbidden to create, and every other God had images. And of course, images allow us to try to be in control. And so God said, You shall not make an image. Dallas goes on, Jesus, of course, understood the great significance of images and has indeed become one himself. Intentionally, he also carefully selected an image that brilliantly conveys himself and his message, the cross. The cross presents the lostness of man as well as the sacrifice of God 
and the abandonment to God that brings redemption. No doubt, it is the all-time most powerful image and symbol of human history. And that is simply true. The crucifixion itself, I was just reading this past week, has been treated in art more often than any other scene or event in human history. Need we say Jesus knew what he was doing in selecting it? He planned it and is also the master of images. If anyone would follow me, let them take up their cross. For his own benefit, for their own benefit, his followers need to keep the image of the cross vividly present in their mind. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Say a word about that. Eleanor Stump writes about what a powerful thing that shame is. It is this sense that we are not lovable, that we are to be rejected, and that is imposed on us. We see this with little children in uh, classrooms where a little girl who is not thought to be attractive or a little boy who is not thought to be athletic become the objects of scorn and shame. Joseph Merrick, I think his picture may come up here, uh, is known as the elephant man. And because of a great deformity physically when he was born, became an object of complete shame, beaten and then abandoned by his own parents. Eventually he had no other way to make a living but to be shown as a freak show where people would pay money to look at his deformity. And then a doctor, Frederick Treves, found him and had great compassion, at first thought he must be an imbecile, and then discovered he was a man of unbelievable intellect and became his friend. And eventually, uh, Joseph Merrick was honored by, among others, the Princess of Wales. Joseph Merrick used to sign his letters with a poem that he adapted, where he writes, It's true my form is something odd, but blaming me is blaming God. Could I create myself anew, I would not fail in pleasing you. If I could reach from pole to pole or grasp the ocean with a span, I would be measured by the soul. The mind's the standard of the man. He adopted that from a poem called False Greatness by a writer named Isaac Watts, who also wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You see, of all the forms of shame, a sense of ugliness and not being worthy of love, of being excluded, shame is always measured by the distance that unshamed people keep from the shamed one. The ultimate acceptance of shame involved, of all things, what became the most famous symbol of all time. The cross was not just a means of killing someone, it was by Rome the means of showing the failure of somebody who wanted to be Messiah. Now, the Messiah was another image that had all kinds of associations with it, but they were about power and glory. And so a cross was to undo. It, it, it was regarded as uh, a status degradation ritual, one person says. Uh, to be tried, mocked, spat upon in the face, given a crown of thorns. The body is a place to be honored, to be crowned, to be clothed in purple. Jesus was stripped, we are told. Jesus hung on the cross. When you see images of that, generally there's a loincloth. When we see that in art, uh, Jesus was hung on a cross naked. 
and done that in such a way when people are degraded by nakedness, we naturally instinctively use our arms or legs to try to cover ourselves on a cross that was unable, part of the pain of the cross, especially for a Jewish victim where nakedness was such a shameful thing, was to be killed naked before everybody. Now what happens with a man like Joseph Merrick is that although there are uh, standards of shame imposed by them, uh, he ends up saying, I refuse to accept the standards by which you seek to shame me. I scorn the shame. And this became the greatest and most influential symbol image of all time, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him to heal all of us, to embrace all of us, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And because he did that, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name. God has exalted him. It became the status elevation ritual. So today, here's the image. Be a woman of the cross. Be a man of the cross. I'll see you next time.